This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to Frogwind, the Friday edition of Oh God, What Now? The podcast for semi-recovering politics addicts. I'm Andrew Harrison and we've got a huge show for you today. Ian Dunt, Naomi Swift and Seth Tabo will be dismantling the EU retained law bill and several more nightmare components of this dying government's legislative agenda. Plus, COVID conspiracy is back. Hooray. And in the extra bit for Patreon people, we'll be digging into Wes Streeting's somewhat unexpected idea of banning all cigarettes everywhere forever. Before we do that, let me remind you about our first live show of 2023. It's at the Leicester Square Theatre on Wednesday the 15th of February. Alex Andrea will be hosting Ian Dunt, Ros Taylor and Aisha Hazarika to deal with whatever nightmares fate has to hand out by then. It's always a fantastic night and we can tell you that there are no rail strikes on, so no need to miss out. Tickets are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. There's a link in the show notes and Patreon people, your discount still works, so check your inbox for the code. We will see you there. Now let's meet the panel. Naomi Smith both runs Best for Britain and is Best for Britain. Hello, Naomi. How are you? Yeah. <laughs> what the what the listeners can't see is she's got to wear a bubble hat in the office because it's so cold. Best for Britain does not waste money. <laughs> we do not. That is very, very true. I'm also clutching a hot cup of tea to keep my hands warm. This is what we want. So, Naomi, what is your favourite Tory money scandal this week? Is it Liz Truss's headache-inducing Jenga lectern? costing £4,175 or £82 per day of her premiership? Or is it Nadim Zahawi voluntarily paying £3.7 million of capital gains tax that he forgot to pay from his sale of YouGov shares? Uh, uh, on the on the Jenga lectern, this is actually quite old news. It's not this week's news. And I know that because um, we actually included it in Best for Britain's Wasteful Spending Tracker, which is keeping a running Ah. total of all the outrageously scandalous wastes of money uh, that this government has pursued. And it's about to tip over to a whopping 70 billion in total. So if listeners want to, you know, delve into the dirty detail of that, you can go to bestforbritain.org. And then it's slash, I think, scandalous underscore spending underscore tracker or something hideous like that. (laughs) Google it, you'll find it. but yeah, I mean, Seth probably knows this because he follows the wealth and privilege of politicians very, very closely. But I can't remember when he sold YouGov, um, but it wasn't recent, it wasn't particularly recently. So to have forgotten. This was years and years ago, but the um, shares went not to him. He, he didn't have a controlling, or he didn't have a founder's stake in the shares. Uh, instead, there was this offshore company in his stead. And that uh, continued to be existent. I think it still is in existence. But yes, that's what the dispute relates to. That's right. Backing Britain. That's what we like. <laughs> Offshore Britain. <laughs> that familiar laugh you can hear in the background there is Ian Dunt, columnist for the iPaper, the author of How to Be a Liberal and the owner of dozens of 2000 AD t-shirts. Hello, Ian. How are you? <laughs> I only have two. Two of those t-shirts. Yeah, but you wear them in different ways. You know, it's how you wear them. Uh, Ian, the Scottish government is taking the UK government to court of the Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack 
and his Section 35 order to block the Gender Recognition Bill in Scotland. What is going on here? Right. So, uh, Section 35, which incidentally, yesterday while discussing this with someone, I accidentally went, so when they trigger Article 50, and I was like, oh, God! <laughs> oh, God, no! That's just taking me back to when uh, Nomi used to refer to it as fifticle. Because <laughs> when I think we'd been testing beers that day. But yes, so it's the, the, they're triggering Section 25. Uh, and... Section 35, indeed. Yeah. And it has two parts to it, legally. This is all a bit, I mean, this is completely unprecedented. No one's ever done this before. So people are figuring it out as they go. But there are two parts to this section that are pertinent here that are going to come up in the court case. The first one is if what the Scottish government has done with their gender recognition um, legislation modifies a bit of reserved law. Now, in this case, that reserved law, reserved law means stuff that Westminster keeps for itself that Scotland can't be messing around with. In this case, that refers to the Equalities Act. The second part is, is what they've done is, does the minister have a reasonable belief in adverse effects on the operation of the law? The first part seems to me to be really weak, but we're going to have to wait and see the way that I think ultimately the Supreme Court sort of thinks about it. Because the thing is, when you change the way that you change gender in law, you're not, mess you're not doing anything with the Equalities Act. What the Equalities Act says is, for whatever your sex is, you are protected against discrimination. At the point that you have changed your gender, you are now protected by that. But there's nothing in there about actually how you change your yeah. gender. All of that is circumstantial to the act. So that seems like a pretty high bar. Not everyone agrees. Some of the people that think that ultimately Westminster is going to lose, nevertheless think it can win on the modification argument, not least Charles, uh, Charlie Faulkner. Um, right. But most other people disagree. The second part then is what's the adverse effect? And when you look at Jack's statement yesterday, it's very hard to keep this debate away from the minutiae and the sort of meat of the trans debate as we know it, because the, the document that's published is essentially all of the classic sort of arguments that you see, of, you know, what if someone gets into an only woman's space when they're, you know, a sex offender? What do we do about sports? All, all of the stuff that you're used to. So that, it does look a bit like if the Supreme Court, probably be seen by other courts first, get to the point on adverse effect, that second element of the test, they are essentially gonna be testing at the same moment, two of the most volatile, and sort of divisive political debates, one of which is Scottish independence, essentially, or how much power Scotland has. And the other one is the trans debate in court, because you're assessing whether there would be an adverse effect on the Equalities Act, on women's rights, as it's put. So it seems really explosive. I feel very, very depressed about it. They didn't need to do it. I think it's quite clear why it's being done. It's because of Badenoch, basically thinking, right, here's a chance to pursue the agenda. But whichever way you look at the outcome, it's not going to end well. If the government is found to be wrong in that court case, they would have made themselves look like the most hapless bullies of Scotland. I mean, just an absolute disaster for the union. But if they're found if the, to win the case, which they very well could, the Supreme Court typically sort of at, at the moment, most of the trends are against Scotland and towards Westminster, against the devolved um, administrations. If they're found to have behaved legally, it's pretty apocalyptic stuff. Because what you're just saying is there's a very, very broad power for ministers to just veto Scottish legislation, mm. if it has any impact, like any consequence at all, on any bit of reserve legislation. Now, that is a huge power that's just been handed to Westminster that would sit there as part of the constitutional status quo in this country, and it would be pretty, pretty troubling indeed. 
Well, I have a suspicion this might come back, you know, Ian. I think I, we might I be speaking about this we again. We might speak about it So again. keep your notes. <laughs> uh, completing the dream team for today, it's author, historian, investigative journalist, and I'm thrilled to learn fellow Doctor Who fan, Seth Tavo. Hello, Seth. How are you? Afternoon. Well, thanks. And you? I'm all right. I'm not bad. Uh, so no one in the audience has had to listen to the conversation that these two had for <laughs> five minutes before we started recording. I just want to point out that Seth has a remarkable velvet smoking jacket with him, and it's looking really good. Uh, Seth. More than one, actually. Well, every gentleman needs more than one. Uh, as the author of Behind Closed Doors, The Secret Life of London's Private Members Clubs, what did you make of the new Boris Johnson portrait that was unveiled in the Carlton Club? Vigo the Carpathian. Um, for, for anyone who remembers uh, Ghostbusters 2 or, or doesn't, um, a hated, deposed former leader um, had an interdimensional portal installed in a painting through which he hopes to make a return and comeback uh, in which he struck at this, this sort of very menacing place. I mean, the, the, the painting um, gives Johnson lots of things, um, a chin, uh, cheekbones, a waistline he hasn't had for 35 years. Um, but it, it has him in a sort of Churchillian pose with crossed arms, skulking. It's very nearly hip-hop crossed arms, isn't it? Yeah. It's very nearly hanging tough. Very much so. Um, but, I mean, the thing to remember about um, clubs like this is is that they have art that's there for a purpose. It's not necessarily good art. I mean, if you look, for example, at the Carlton Club's portrait of David Cameron, um, it actually looks very much like the Steve Bell cartoon with a condom over his face, you know, <laughs> the, the way that everything's so photoshopped and so smooth and, and crystal clear. Um, I mean, <laughs> there was a great caption in uh, Private Eye this week about the painting, uh, The Lies Follow You Around the Room. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, the, the thing that uh, struck me about this as a sort of keen clubland watcher, which I, I think had slipped most people by, is that the room where the painting was unveiled is actually where Chris Pincher got completely plastered in the incident that sparked off the downfall of Boris oh, wow. Johnson. Ah. So I'd, I'd like to think that it's a sort of horcrux, if that's how it's pronounced, and, and that oh. it's, it's cursed. We really are mixing our genres here, are we, in continuities? It's a very <laughs> big crossover episode already. Well, maybe the painting will be discovered to have the eyes cut out and Boris is behind the wall sort of gazing through them in, in true carry-on-screaming style. Who knows? Hmm. It's overly controlling legislation week in the Commons. As we speak, Labour is forcing a vote on the EU retained law bill. The government's plan to A, free us from 4,000 hated laws derived from the EU SSR by the end of the year, if you're a Brexiter, <laughs> or B, explode a dirty bomb in the middle of any EU derived legislation and then salt the earth to make it impossible to resurrect any of them. If you're not, it's part of the government's quick before they turf us out approach to legislation, which also includes more last minute add-ons to the online harms bill and the public order bill than you get from Vodafone when they want you to renew your contract. Um, <laughs> Ian, starting with the EU retained law bill, because you hate this stuff, don't you? Uh, is this real legislation with a point or is it just a last minute bit of performative Brussels bashing before the kind of the towels go up? I think it's worse than that. I think it's um, a sort of last gasp back to vandalism to prevent a future Labour government from repairing any of the damage that they've done. Mm. Essentially, it's just, fuck you, we'll just burn this place down. And that's essentially what they're engaged in. Mm. They have no idea. They have no idea what law it is that they're getting rid of. They li And they admit it. Mm. They fucking admit it. I mean, in, in June 2022, they set up this kind of dashboard where everyone had to look for laws that might get switched off by the deadline of the 31st of December 2023. And they found 2,400. Then the National Archive gets involved last November. And they're like, I t tell you what, lads, we've just found another like 1,400 over here. That's that the you might want to... yes. Right. So it's just like, well, how many do they not know about now? 
that they're just going to fucking get rid of on, on a completely arbitrary timetable that has no reason to exist whatsoever. You know what they've done? I'm going to use the word twice now in the opening 10 minutes, which makes me sound like the stereotype of what, myself. What word will it be? They, they have activated Article 50. Again. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, literally, they got to the end of the period. They were like, oh, we haven't got this Article 50 thing, you know, which just switches us straight onto no deal unless we hit this, this timetable. So we'll just invent our own fucking red line and then switch off our own laws and call it control. It is the act of someone that is completely insane. And therefore, I suppose it should be unsurprising that they're pursuing it. It's not usually the person who's got to defuse the time bomb that sets the timer of the time bomb, is it? I just like pictures of sweatily set out. Oh, no, I've accidentally turned off Magna Carta. Shit. Where's the button? Um, Labour believes that basic rights, including maternity protections and holiday entitlements, are likely to go. What else is in the crosshairs? Or is it just everything? Well, I mean, it's pretty much anything where there is delegated legislation. Come on, list all 4,000, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Dude, everybody just put your feet up, make a cup of tea. <laughs> we'll be here for some time. Um, it's basically anything where there's delegated legislation. This doesn't apply to primary legislation. Delegated legislation uh, you know, on EU law. So we know that the departments that are probably most affected is business, um, energy and industrial strategy, uh, the Department of Transport, and most importantly, the Department for the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. DEFRA is going to be finding very nasty things under all sorts of rocks all over its policy area. And civil servants will be activated to look for that. But I mean, we're looking at things like, you know, gas safety standards, food safety standards, ingredients, the environment. I mean, across the whole of your, you know, you, basically your industrial portfolio, you know, your economy, you are basically saying to people, to businesses, right now, in the middle of economic sort of calamity and strikes and inflation, you go, tell you what, we're going to give you zero regulatory confidence if for this year and next year, mm. and indeed the year after that, we're just going to throw it all into fucking disarray. For what? It's not even Brexity, really, because if your argument is we want, you know, we've got all these regulations formed at a European level, we need to tailor them to the UK to our own interests. You wouldn't fucking do this, would you? You wouldn't just say, well, switch the fuckers all off. You know, that's, that's not even tailoring it to your own interests. It's just madness. You, you and I were chatting before we did the podcast, about, and I, my ignorance of this will shine out like a light. And I asked Ian, would it be possible for a future Labour government to just kind of do a command Z on the bill, repeal this bill, and then everything comes back to life like Ray, like Ray Harryhausen's skeletons in the desert? Um, no, it isn't. Uh, because the thing is that you're repealing law. Okay. So once it's repealed, once you hit that date of, you know, 31st of uh, December, the law just goes off the statute book. It's no longer law. The closest that Labour could do would be to bundle everything that went up into one bill and pass that. But, I mean, that would be a pretty odd thing to do, I think, and quite Everything hard. about this is pretty odd. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, you're right. But the thing is that Labour isn't going to want to behave with that yeah. same kind of messianic zeal and, and simplicity that they are. So, no, I mean, it's, it's really hard to undo. Once it happens, it's done. And apart from the Lords, at the moment, there's very little to stop it happening. Naomi, this was conceived by Johnson and David Frost, who are both now in the bin. Uh, it became a Reese Mogg hobby horse. He appears to be pretty much finished as a serious politician. Is he acting from beyond the political grave here? Well, in a manner of speaking, uh, yes. Um, Mogg may have been too chummy with Johnson and Trust to have survived Sunak's half-hearted purge. But this bill is... I mean, Ian sort of sounded like he might disagree with this, but it is totemic for Brexiters. It's this final way for them to indulge 
their Brexit fantasies of, you know, Brexit's going badly because we still have all these leftover restrictions that are holding us back and stopping us from growing. We need to abolish weekends. We need to abolish, you know, maternity <laughs> rights to really fire up the UK economy. And that that was always the true objective of Brexit. Mm. It, it was about deregulating the UK economy and removing the rights and freedoms of British people and British workers. With scant regard for the fact that we amended these things when we were in the EU. You know, these are not laws that we didn't have a very heavy hand in drafting anyway. And yeah, cut, cutting off our nose to spite our face and damaging British business even more than it already is in the process. It Sunak is... He really is a Brexiter. He's not just putting it on. He's yeah. <clears throat> He's been convinced since very, very... Yeah, he didn't early. write two, two versions of the same article. <clears throat> no, he didn't. Um, but it does seem very much at odds and, and irresponsible, at, at odds with his kind of calm down, lads, Rishi's here, mm. everything's going to be fine. Uh, you know, Even if he believed in doing it, you wouldn't do it mm. now. So why is he doing it? Two reasons. One, he's he's weak which sounds nuts when you've got such an enormous majority in the Commons. But he's weak and he's not getting things through and he's too weak to face down the ERG. And despite his long-standing support for Brexit that you've mentioned, in in the minds of those swivel-eyed zealots, Sunak is a member of the metropolitan elite and therefore, you know, anti, anti-Brexit in their true believer eyes. And it's a feeling thing that Sunak just doesn't feel Brexity uh, in the way that they do. And the second thing is, now I don't want to give anyone PTSD, but go back to the summer, his leadership campaign. And remember, he literally had a video that his campaign put out of a paper shredder. It was one of the most stupid and insulting things I've ever seen. It really was. It made, it, made, it made Boris Johnson and his bulldozer look like the fucking Gettysburg Address. It was pitiful. <laughs> But do go on. It is complete nonsense. For all his many faults, Sunak isn't dim. And he knows that this arbitrary deadline is going to cause mayhem and serious economic damage. Um, And so he's going along with it because he made it a big part of his campaign because he is very, very weak within his own parliamentary party. And I reckon he's probably just got his fingers crossed like the rest of us do, that it's going to just get shot down in the Lords and he can blame it all on the anti-democratic, you know, peers for, for blocking Brexit. Well, I mean, that, uh, we should talk about that because even when arch-Brexiter David Davis, when Robert Buckland, when Caroline Noakes all want to amend it to at least give MPs a chance to scrutinise the laws that will go, and when the, the Lords seems to have very little appetite for it, do you think it's going to get through in the form that it's heading to the Lords? No. Um, oh no, it'll, it'll it'll get to the Lords. Yeah. Uh, well, so I, I don't I don't know how successful the amendments uh, that Labour are putting down will be. Ultimately, probably you know the numbers won't be there because as we went to record, there were sort of half a dozen or so Conservative MPs that had signed, for instance, Stella Creasy's significant amendment to the bill. The bill will probably go back to the House of Lords relatively untouched by the commons but boy oh boy do the lords have fire in their belly to stop this thing uh, at best of britain we worked incredibly closely with peers from all parties and none on the northern Ireland protocol bill and i've never before heard such anger from peers conservative peers crossbench peers many of whom you know had, had very very prestigious legal careers before going into the lords condemning that bill 
they are even angrier about this bill. Um, so, you know, they can see Sunak is weak. We can assume it's part of the reason the Northern Ireland Protocol has been put on ice. He knows it won't go through another round of the Lords. But caveating all of that with it could happen by accident. You know, if, if this deadline is set in law, that's it. We can't be complacent. We need to keep our eye on the ball and we've got to keep pressure up on defeating the bill. So do, do, do write to your MP about it. Seth, I mean, this does seem very out of time. It seems like something from 2017, from a, from a different era. It's a bit like, you know, a band turning up in 1999 and going, hey, Britpop, you know, uh, when it's all gone. Does the British public care about this when there are so many bigger fish to fry? No, I don't think so. And um, actually, the Britpop era is probably the best analogy for this. If you go back to sort of 95, 96, we're in a fourth term Tory government with another year or two left to run on the parliamentary term. And even if this is an entirely successful, neatly organised exercise, the idea that in the remaining two years, they're going to be able to follow through on this stuff Mm. and legislate thoroughly around it and enact all of this is pretty naive. I mean, the, the you can do a lot of damage in that time. But in in terms of actually seeing it through, um, this is something which can poison the parliamentary agenda, actually, for the next five, six years at least, because of the stuff that then needs to be re-undone. You know, ne- never yeah. putting in mind rejoining the EU and actually re-undoing a lot of this that way. Um, it's quite insular sort of stuff, which... As Naomi was um, very much sort of touching upon the, the the power of the Tory backbenchers, it feeds into their preoccupations. Mm. Um, there has always been an element of the forever water Brexit, though, hasn't it? The idea that, like, as a political engine of popularity and power, it's so much better unfulfilled or not quite working yet yeah. because there's yeah. our, our opponents are preventing it. Is this another round of that? It, it's very much down to the way that even the biggest advocates of Brexit would say that it was always a process rather than an end point. It was always about a way of doing things. But as a result, um, if I can bring up actually Doctor Who, oh, please there, do. <laughs> there, there, there was a great spoof that Mark Gatiss did where uh, you, you have the villain saying, you know, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to bubble the earth seas to nothing. <laughs> Why are you going to do that then? <laughs> Power. Over what? The sea. And then what? <laughs> and that's it. It's sort of, okay, you've done all of this. What's it actually fundamentally leading to? Yes, it's basically, why do you want to take over the universe? You wouldn't know what to do with it apart from shout at it. Yeah. We've also been enjoying the return of the online harms bill to protect children from harmful content and activity online. Firms will have to publish risk assessments for kids and tech executives could be jailed for serious breaches of child safety. Naomi, nobody's ever in favour of putting kids at risk, but what about the children is the classic bad faith way to get legislation through. What's your take on the online harms bill? It's vague. Um, It's littered with vague concepts like harmful content and leaving the definition of that wide open to interpretation and difficult to legally define for regulatory purposes. Um, And it also envisages that compliance with the new law will be overseen by Ofcom. Ofcom notoriously already has a very wide remit, and I doubt the Tories will get out the checkbook to fund a massive expansion of the staff required to handle what is going to become a, a potentially a huge workload. 
And another issue I think we need to flag is that it includes the consequences for volunteer-run sites like Wikipedia. Um, and the EU Digital Services Act distinguishes between larger platforms like uh, you know, Google and YouTube from community-moderated sites. But this bill paints all sites with the same brush, whether they've got a TikTok-style army of professional staff supporting them or 10 to 15 people with their own laptops. And the erosion of the right to be anonymous online, some people say, could weaken the ability of whistleblowers and human rights activists and others to speak freely without fear of reprisal. So I think that's, I'm not as expert on, on that bill as I am on the, the more Brexit related ones, but that's, I think, a bit of a TLDR overview. Ian, you found an absolute perler of an amendment from uh, Michelle Donnell and the Culture Secretary. Uh, you will not be allowed to show small boats in a positive light. Oh, no, I mean, well, the Guardian found it and reported it, and I just started losing my mind because I was I was half cut on this weird artificial alcohol that's been invented by Professor David Nutt last night. Oh, you've had some of that. <laughs> I have. Yeah, oh, it was wow. really interesting. I genuinely felt quite tipsy, and I was like, "There's no alcohol." It's quite an odd experience. Hmm. It's even odder on nut. On nut, exactly. I was off my nut on nut. Um, it's also even weirder to sit there in your kitchen and be like. How drunk am I? Because that's not something you've done since you were 14. But just yeah. trying to assess your internal levels of whatever. Anyway, it, I, I would recommend it. But this, this, this amendment then, you're not allowed. This is news. This, this is like the day-to-day when Sinn Féin had to inhale helium before they said anything to subtract credibility. It's like, this. what is going on here? Well, there's a, so there was a little bit of misreporting in the Guardian piece. The Guardian piece, you said you shouldn't show the people on the boat in a positive light. What seems to be the case from the minister in the comments is you couldn't show the activity of the boat crossings in a positive light. Now, because it's a danger to children, because then children are more likely to get on the vote. I mean, you can see how they're just stretching these definitions beyond what any reasonable assessment, you know, would make of them. Now, the danger is obvious, right? Like if you have an RNLI video about saving people, that could be potentially seen. You know, if you're taking a broad interpretation by the court, well, you're interpreting it in a positive light. Is a child more likely to get on the boat if they think there's a rescue boat if something goes wrong? Arguably, yes. You know, now you can justify getting rid of it. I've seen many, many videos. If you think of those ones, you know, from sort of asylum rights groups, sort of showing, you know, this is the contribution that refugees make to our society. You could start the video by saying they arrived on a boat, you know, two years later, potentially you're doing the same thing. You know, I think what you get from that is, is it sensible to have governments legislating in this kind of area? And sudden, I mean, there are perfectly legitimate answers on both sides of that. But looking at the way that they're talking now and looking really, if we're realistic about it, about the cognitive ability of ministers and members of the parliamentary party for the government, you know, it, it seemed I'd be pretty wary of having them just wanking around in an area that I don't think that they properly understand without a very firm set of the values that they're trying to communicate. What's your overall take on the on- online harms bill? The more it goes on, the more wary I become. It's been years now that that's been there. And I've heard the stories, and I I should preface this by saying, you know, I believe that social media companies, for instance, are publishers and should be treated like publishers and have the moral and the legal obligations of publishers. And it's about time we did that. I believe that the algorithms that you see on YouTube, for instance, can be particularly dangerous, especially with extremism and other content. However, there is clearly at this point a level of hysteria that is going on around social media companies that are blamed for almost everything, almost all of the time. I think if you look, even if you look at the sort of, and I get it, the bulimia, the anorexia, the suicide sort of content that keeps on coming up in the news of, you know, young teenagers seeing this content, the algorithm gets them off, they go. 
increasingly, I, also, I then think about my own childhood, right? So if I think of like an album like the Holy Bible by the Manic Street Preachers, mm -hmm. okay? Now, if, if, if that's a comparison, would they have gotten rid of that on that basis? Would they have said that that was romanticizing or encouraging like anorexia and bulimia? Kind of, yeah. You know, if, if you've got something to do with a subculture that's to do yeah. with just expression of it without judgment, I think arguably it falls on the wrong side of these kind of rules. And so suddenly again, you get that sense of just people who don't really understand what they're doing, responding to a sense of moral hysteria, acting in a very bludgeoning legislative manner. Seth, I mean, it's also going to criminalize sharing pornographic deep fakes and also down blousing, which is the, I suppose, the down blouse version of upskirting, which is, I believe, already illegal. Uh, it's going to uh, criminalize cyber flashing, which is sending explicit pictures to strangers. This is all actually quite fair enough, isn't it? Um, the objectives, absolutely. But your little aside about this is already illegal is actually the important point here. Mm. Um, I'm slightly reminded of the way that throughout the new Labour years, we'd a criminal justice bill every year, which would introduce mm. tough new powers, which would in fact just repeat existing offences and create a new offence of something that was an existing offence. Do you remember this... when they banned setting off a nuclear bomb? <laughs> well, it should be banned, Ian. Why are you <laughs> only? Well, it's like, I'm sure yeah. this is covered somewhere in yeah. the legislation. But it, this doesn't necessarily make for better law, actually. Mm. Um, and I, I think a, a stronger tie-in with where the existing law is being interpreted, where judges' interpretations of the law and shortcomings of that are happening, might actually be more effective in a lot of these cases rather than just saying, right, we're going to create a whole new load of offences. Uh, how can you see famously responsible social media landlord Elon Musk cooperating with these provisions <laughs> when he doesn't seem to think that any legal jurisdiction seems to apply to him? Well, um, I'm not sure that's entirely fair. I think he doesn't um, think that any jurisdiction outside the United States exists. And it seemed to be news to him that EU employment law applied, for example, to some of his um, reforms. So um, the idea that the United Kingdom exists, I think, would be news to him. Um, so I, he I'm might be sure right soon. <laughs> <laughs> He's ahead of the curve. He is, yes. Um, also making its way through the elementary canal of Parliament at the moment is the Public Order Bill. Uh, the government has decided police need powers to stop protests before they're even happening. Um, Ian, has uh, Suella Braverman been watching Minority Report? Yeah, I mean, so this is the, you know, the, the capacity to define serious disruption or rather basically to get rid of the need of any definition for it. You know, in all of our protest legislation since the Thatcher period, you have this phrase that keeps on coming up, serious disruption, and was, and was then really given a heavy emphasis by Priti Patel in the policing bill, I think a year ago, maybe two years ago now. And in there, they said, oh, by the way, on the serious disruption, uh, you know, we're just going to do a statutory instrument over here. So the Home Secretary can just fucking define that however she likes, whenever she wants to. So don't, don't think you really have a right to protest. It's all dependent on what the Home Secretary just happens to decide without any real parliamentary involvement. Now they've gone beyond that. It's just like, no, you know what? The fucking the, the police can do it. They'll decide if there's not serious disruption happening. But if it's going to happen in the future, so they can just close down the protest now and then all of those draconian authoritarian measures that are in this bill and the previous bill come crashing down on a protest. I mean, I've got to tell you, like, this government on protest 
has been much worse than the new Labour, which was fucking terrible, and much worse than Thatcher, who was also fucking terrible. This does feel like something from a different age. Um, you know, if you think back to how paranoid the Tories were throughout the 70s and 80s of Conservative governments being brought down by unions, the trauma of the Ted Heath government, the trauma of the strikes of 79 to 81 and the fear that they might bring down Thatcher. Thatcher was originally really conciliatory towards the unions out mm. of fear. Mm. And the... the, the um, um, minor strike of 84, 85 as a confrontation really was about trying to lance that boil. But this does seem to be something where every faithful, loyal Tory who's been brought up on the fairy stories of how the 1980s were created beautifully and how Thatcher managed to vanquish the unions, it seems to be part of that mythology. And they're dealing with fairy tales rather than with actually a problem which we have right now. Naomi, I mean, we've, we've looked at the future um, earlier in the podcast what kind of landscape is going to face Labour when it's faced with all these exceptionally illiberal authoritarian protest laws and wants to repeal them? Because to try and repeal any of these will immediately be betrayed by every part of the Tory press as soft on protest, even when it's just to return us to where we were in 2015. The amount that Labour are going to, well, that we would love Labour to undo in its first term <laughs> is just growing and growing and growing. And we talked about the Control Z on EU-retained law bill stuff, but there has been swathes of deeply authoritarian legislation make its way through to become acts of parliament over the last few years and and more on the way. So, uh, and, th- and they'll have their own plan for government. They'll have their own things they want to crack on and do rather than simply define themselves as the not those guys, let's undo the damage they did. So it's really hard to see how much parliamentary time there will be um, and is why it's so important to try and get amendments and, and and blockages to some of these bills as they're making their passage. Before we move on, this uh, stuff is also happening with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, yeah. Can you give us a quick fill-in on that? Yeah. Um, so last week it was confirmed the government had reached an agreement in principle with the EU on the sharing of data. And this is all about goods moving from GB into NI and their potentiality or not to make it onwards into the single market proper. Um, that's very important because it will facilitate the flow of data and goods and cut down on all of that Brexit red tape and the physical checks on goods that we hear about. Um, But following this, there have been more frequent talks between Cleverly and Sefcovich um, and lots of talk about them entering something called the tunnel, which is these sort of deep days of negotiation. Um, Despite many people suggesting that they are in the tunnel and them looking like they're very much in the tunnel, The government maintains that they are, in fact, not in a tunnel. Uh, They are, in fact, tunnel free. Um, So they had a recent statement saying there's still significant gaps between them. Could be true. Could be expectation management. We just don't really know. But there does seem to be a bit of a momentum to show progress, um, whether it'll be enough to coax Joe Biden out of his chairlift and onto a plane to visit Belfast for the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which looms in April or not remains to be seen.
We all enjoyed seeing long-time show favourite Andrew Bridgen MP get his comeuppance last week when he lost the Tory whip after describing the COVID vaccine programme as the biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust. Bridgen had been taking increasingly outlandish positions on COVID, uh, including that uh, coronavirus was a bioweapon and associating with the fringe vaccine sceptic Dr. Asim Malhotra. But behind the amusement factor of the downfall of the man the Times called Andrew Bridgen, the anti-science spud, it is worrying to say that anti-vaxxers can groom even an MP. As the pandemic seems to be receding in the UK, the news from China is getting worse. Having suppressed the figures for months after abandoning its hardline lockdown, China admitted last week to 60,000 hospital deaths in a single month. The World Health Organization considers that a serious underestimation. So with news like that coming out of China and stories about bats and biolabs still in circulation, could COVID conspiracy theory be getting a second wind as fuel for the far right? Now, Naomi, I know you don't want to talk about Andrew Bridgen. Who does want to talk about Andrew Bridgen? But is this a case of an MP on the fade who is just desperately seeking relevance? Uh, Who knows? More importantly, who cares? Mm. What he said was vile. He is vile. And I suppose if you were going to try and convince an MP, he's he's the obvious one that you would go for because he is stupid enough to fall for it. Well, I mean, we, we can actually call him a liar because a judge found that he was a liar. Yeah, yeah. In that Indeed. case, over the over the potato firm, if you're judging people by the by the company they keep, apparently Piers Corbyn and his mates have been demonstrating in favour of Andrew Bridgen and shouting <laughs> media whore at yep. uh, people who disagree. So there you go. Oh yeah, no. Remember, it is not just the right. You know, there are cranks on all sides. Well, it's horseshoe, isn't it? Which you may come on to talk about in a moment. But I want to ask you, why has COVID conspiracism proved so powerful as a kind of entry drug to the far right? Uh, this is such a good question, and I think conservatism and those with right-wing tendencies, especially but not exclusively the religious right, tends to have real problems with embracing doubt. And academic research has found that people who embrace the scientific enterprise as a whole are more likely to accept specific scientific findings. And conservatives are less likely to accept the norms of science. Um, And I, I guess this suggests that the worldviews of some people on the political right may be intrinsic conflict with science and, and embracing doubt that go ahead with this policy because it's the best thing that we've got. So it's very, very easy for those who are in that world of you know far-right nastiness that are recruiting for it to go after people who are either undereducated and or have slight you know more conservative worldviews um because it is an easier pool for them to fish from and and convert people over do voices in the uk health establishment do enough to take on this kind of conspiracism because i don't think we we don't really seem to see any covid messaging at all anymore apart from the posters that people have forgotten to take down Yeah. yeah i mean there is the fact that covid has just dropped right down the news agenda which is unfortunate for two reasons one cases are incredibly high and of course secondly the continued impact of long covid on millions of people's lives in the uk alone let alone globally ian last week's private eye had a a fantastic story on how gb news is laundering covid disinformation from 
cranks across the board. Any anybody who's written a crank book and can't get interviewed anywhere else will <laughs> pop up on GB News. They've had Andrew Tate talking about COVID as if he knows anything about it. And what the eye pointed out was that uh, Ofcom can't act because it depends on viewer complaints and the kind of people who are watching GB News are, don't want to complain. They mm. love this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So are there the tools around to deal with this kind of thing? It's not in the online harms bill, is it? It's a very gentlemanly regulatory system that we have on broadcasting. And you got that sense. I remember talking to them ahead of GB News being released. And you really got that sense from them. It was just like, you know, most of this should be, it shouldn't really come to the point of having an inquiry. You know, it should be mostly about talking, making sure the overall balance of the stuff that you produce is this way. It's, it's quite kind of mercurial in that sort of classic British sense of we haven't really got any specificity here. We're just hoping on everyone's good judgment and things should shuffle out in the end. A a little bit of that. But then, fair enough, because it's worked until now. And now you're being presented with something that's quite different, you know, all of a sudden. And and it's it's also the the way that GB News operates almost like a kind of sort of subgenre almost. It's like, No one really talks about it, right? Like, I mean, when you start looking at the figures, they're actually not bad. We're past Mm. the point of laughing at them. You know, there's certain points and certain evenings where it goes past Sky. Now, that, 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 by the way, is not a huge deal. I mean, news channels don't get a lot of viewers unless shit happens, right? You know, the rest of the time, you're not dealing with huge audiences, but they are getting more than Sky, you know, at certain points. Occasionally, yeah, yeah. Occasionally. Um, And the stuff that they're putting out, I mean, at this point, that, that thing operates to spread conspiracy theory. I'm increasingly aghast when I see sort of fellow, you know, pundits or whatever go on there. And I'm just like, what the fuck are you doing on there? Yeah. Like, what do you, why would you, why would you validate it in any way, shape or form? So I think there's a sense now that it is becoming something that's actually quite dangerous and quite toxic. You and Dorian did a a mini cast, one of our Oh God, What Else little ones for the Patreon people uh, last year on the crossover between the far right and what we called Woo. You know, science denying, you know, spirituality, <laughs> vibes and so forth world and how the two have a strange connection. Um, COVID has been a gateway to extremist ideas like, for instance, the Great Replacement Theory, terribly racist. And you see it popping up on kind of wellness pages now. And you, uh-huh. see, you see it being articulated by the, the most unexpected people. There is, seems to be no organized defense against this. The problem is that conspiracy theories uh, have an inbuilt defense against refutation, you know, yeah. which is that imbued in them is this idea that there is a sinister conspiracy in the media and politics that has, you know, blinded everyone, all the sheep, you know, and that, that they are so powerful, they can achieve this. And so therefore, whenever you try to refute it, you know, it, it is pre-built with an immunity against your argument for that. Nevertheless, it, it is in this country pretty modest, I mean, compared to what we see, I mean, you know, obviously, if you look at the US, if you look at Brazil, you're seeing much more virulent, widespread sense of conspiracy theory than you're seeing here. You know, part of the reason that I never felt that we needed to have a conversation about, you know, clamping down on the free speech of sort of COVID deniers and, you know, during the pandemic was because they were just so unbelievably unsuccessful. You know what I mean? Like they just couldn't spread what they were doing to the British public at all. And if you remember at the time, after all the divisions of Brexit, it felt actually really quite uniform, the manner in which people were speaking and talking about politics about, of COVID during the lockdowns. So in that sense, I don't think we should sort of exaggerate it. But for the people that succumb to this, it's very hard to get them out of it. And you can, I can only remind you of that one thing is the strongest predicator of whether someone is going to believe a new conspiracy theory is whether they already believe one. You know, it, it is a gateway drug to more of the same turgid bullshit.
Seth, another leg of this kind of resurgent conspiracy view is the claim that unexplained deaths are always down to COVID. You're seeing this hashtag flying around, hashtag died suddenly. Wired has a great piece on the false claims that the deaths of everybody from Terry Hall from the specials to Lisa Marie Presley to the collapse of the NFL player Damar Hamlin with cardiac arrest, they're all down to the vaccine. And, you know, are we in danger of sort of letting these kind of far-right conspiracies, these kind of these ideas that it's up that something's being kept from us just, you know, run wild and free or, or, or as Ian just pointed out, ridiculing them. On the contrary, I, I think the best way of encouraging behavioural norms is actually to ridicule these things mm-hmm. very healthily. It's a great form of accountability. Um, Charlie Chaplin, in his old age, said that with hindsight, he regretted making the great dictator because he said that after the horrors of the Holocaust, he couldn't really associate humour with the subject matter. But actually, I agree with a much younger Charlie Chaplin saying the the best way of holding this thing to account, the best way of discouraging people from this mad idea is to poke fun at it. Um, And if if you think of something like uh, UKIP were not a problem in UK politics when they were cranks and fruitcakes who were being made fun of. The problems with UKIP started when they were being taken seriously. Mm I don't know if I agree with that, you know, because they seemed to start with, they were still being mocked and laughed at as the as the racists and the cranks and the weirdos while steadily creeping up the opinion polls. And there was a horrible moment where you had to say, this isn't a joke anymore. And I felt the same thing about QAnon. I would love to, I would love to agree because I'd love to believe that humour and, and, and satire, real satire, is more powerful than this stuff. But I don't know if I do anymore. You know, all the awful things in the world were jokes at one point. And now suddenly they're not. Donald Trump was a joke at some point. Boris Johnson was a joke at some point. Oh, I don't is know it, where the cutoff point is. Is it a horseshoe? Does it get back to a joke after a while as well? <laughs> I don't know. Or maybe it's just a horrible kind of ring that goes round and round forever. We're often asked for ways of improving involvement in democracy, and we often say, wouldn't it be better if you could just ask the minister's questions directly, maybe for a small contribution of £3 a month via Patreon, like we do with our But Your Emails. Uh, we've had no takers from the political establishment so far, but we're going to carry on doing But Your Emails because we believe in direct democracy. This week, Patreon backer Julian Beach says, Rishi was mocked for the suggestion that young people should study maths to 18, but if you could choose a subject that should be studied to 18... What would it be? Naomi Smith, what would it be? Modern language. Okay. Very, 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 very much so. And I'm not saying you need to pass an A-level in it, but I think we should start younger with language than the kind of mandatory, you start doing French when you're 11 and you go to big school. Um, I think, you know, it's never, never too early to start. Well, in fact, it's very preferable to start learning a second language as young as possible um, and to have the ability to keep that on um, all the way to 16, 18, whenever it is that you leave school. Uh, I don't think we would be in half the perilous position that we're in today if more people felt common cause with other countries around the world um, and united through a shared language with them. And I say this as somebody who has learned and forgotten several languages over the years. Um, so I would have loved the opportunity. And yeah, languages to 18, please. What kind of a multinational 
global flipping bohemian do you think you are? Yeah. It's never going to take off. I was listening to one of the Bonker podcasts the other day about Finland, and apparently Finnish kids do six languages, uh, but like, and they start before they're 10, and one of them is Maybe Russian. Maybe their language is so freaking hard, it must yeah. be easy to learn any other language. It's not hard to them. They just like dive straight in and, 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 and do the lot. Seth Tovo, what would you uh, have people studying until 18? You'd probably expect me to say something like history, but actually I think the idea that all people regardless of personal circumstance, regardless of interest, ability, whatever, should all do something up to the age of 18 is ludicrous. Mm. And so for that reason alone, I think it should be needlework. <laughs> well, that's practically application, actually. It's, it's you know, you, you, you'll, you'll, you'll never have a hole in your trousers. And make do and mend, you know, exactly. it feeds into exactly. the whole... Reduce, reuse, recycle. Yes, very, very. It's in a weird way. It's very, it's very little England. How about you, Ian? What would you force I people to say? I just can't come up. Because what annoyed me about you know his his proposal was why just one subject. What the fuck? He was just like, what are you talking about? Like, why just the one thing? I mean, even if he'd said English and maths, yeah, you know, is is the basic sort of you know foundational standards. I'd be like, okay, I can kind of see the argument. I mean, I don't think it's a great idea, but I can see the argument. The idea. I don't see that there's any subject that everyone should have to study until 18. I just I 100% do not get that. I think we should probably have a broader education past 16. Mm. The idea that we have to specialise quite so much at that age is probably too much. But there's just not one thing you should study. And we know it. I think so many of us that studied humanities feel it profoundly on the basis of that maths announcement. Because for those of us who just couldn't do maths, and I was 100% one of them, you know, the idea that you would have taken another two years of my life to study maths is just ridiculous. And I think it would be like that for several people on different subjects. See, I actually really enjoyed maths. I was was actually quite good at it. And... But I didn't want to keep doing it. I wanted to go and do all the soft humanities foolishness that's led me to where I am today. Um, and I sort of was a bit annoyed at the idea of being made to do maths until I was 18. It just seemed absurd. I have got an idea that people of something that people should study to 18, and it's a subject that does not yet exist. There is no syllabus for it. Everybody should have to study practicalities until they're 18. And that is running a bank account, how to buy a house, what's a mortgage, how to fix a central heating thing. You know, the, the things in life that we get, get to the end of university and then you find that you actually don't know how to run a, your, your independent life. Which specific Conservative members of Parliament did you have in mind for that? <laughs> all of them, all of the, all politicians, and most journalists as well, certainly me. Because, and I think it would have a secondary benefit as well, which is so much of, so much of school is about separating kids into, into groups that are consistent and that don't mix with others. If you make kids study practicalities till 18, then the smart kids and the not-so-smart kids, the physical kids and the not-so-physical kids, the well-off kids and the less well-off kids will all have to muck in together. And I'm kind of feeling a kind of post-war, you know, homes built for heroes vibe out of this. University of life, eh, Andrew? (laughs) Yeah, but if you actually made the university of life part of school, you wouldn't need the university of life, which is badly underfunded and I believe used to be Life Polytechnic. So I'm going to write to Michael Cove about this. It's an, I've had an actual idea on the Distressingly, it's actually the kind of thing that I could imagine him taking up. So if you are responsible yeah. for a Michael Gove policy, you will never live that shit down. If you get the Tories re-elected off the back of that. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think it's an election winner. We've come to the end of the podcast. So before we go, it's time for Under the Radar, where our panel brings to light the cruelly ignored, neglected or underreported stories that really matter. Seth, what's your Under the Radar? 
The Conservative Party's new treasurer, Mohammed Mansour, has been getting a bit of attention. Um, I know um, Nadim Zahawi was out and about defending him, saying uh, it's outrageous that people are having a pop at him for being Egyptian in the same way. Would they say that I'm I'm Iraqi? And it's guess well, it's slightly more than that. He was actually a minister in the Mubarak government for many years, (laughs) Um, but he has over the last few years donated already half a million pounds to the Tories via his company Unitrack. And Unitrack has just shown up as uh, paying a $4 million diverted profits tax, uh, which puts it into the Nadim Zahawi category of uh, voluntary repayments over um, it's interesting a, matters. It's a great week for HMRC. People <laughs> go, oh, I'll just give you this money for no reason at all. Um, Naomi, what's your under the radar? Boris Johnson, um, who is far too often fated as having, you know, led the West's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But Johnson, as reported in The Independent, actually wanted to scrap the tanks that we are now sending to Ukraine. Even though he is out and about still saying that the UK should be sending and America and Germany and others should be sending vital equipment, including tanks, to Ukraine... In 2021, during the integrated review into defence and security, he argued the age of tanks is over, Mm -hmm. there's no longer any need for them, and uh, a senior military officer apparently had to fight tooth and nail to retain any armoured capability whatsoever in the British Army because Johnson was so convinced that modern warfare would no longer require tanks. So if we needed any kind of reminder that that absolute buffoon asshole was one of, if not the most damaging uh, prime minister of our lifetimes, uh, then there, they, there you go, an idiot saved only by what sounds like some uh, very, very, very worried senior military officials. Ian Dunn, what's your under the radar? Good new paper just came out for the Centre of European Reform, written by, I mean, if, if you're a sort of politics report nerd, John Springford and Jonathan Porters, which is basically like a kind of world's finest sort of policy nerd combination there, um, on the impacts of the post-Brexit immigration system. They basically found that that the end of freedom movement led to a shortfall of around 330,000 workers in Britain. Now, this is particularly interesting because it's not just the end of free movement. It was, do you remember that period where they wouldn't extend the transition period? And, we, and the, the argument was just like, we're in the middle of a fucking pandemic. Just, 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 you've got your Brexit. Just wait a year. What the report documents is exactly what happened as a result of that decision. You know, you had 500,000 UK residents that become inactive, either taking early retirement or becoming sick or waiting for, for treatment. And the way that free movement could have allowed more workers to come and ease that pressure and alleviate the kind of conditions that we find ourselves in right now. This is one of the first reports to really look at that period and go, OK, so exactly what we were saying was going to happen is now what has taken place. So you can find that in the Centre for European Reform. So, you know, we changed the name of the podcast to Oh God, What Now? Mm. Should we change it again to Hate to Say I Told You So? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. in a way... It's always been called that. Has, <laughs> Why bother with I hate to say? <laughs> <laughs> Ian, I believe you have a small event of your own to plug. An event around a, a subject dear to my heart and your heart. Yes, Judge Dredd. Uh, you, for, you know, so the last, what is it, 45 years now? Um, has been this sort of extraordinary British comic creation, this extraordinary satirical creation that kind of valorises but also satirises 
it sort of fetishizes and satirizes like authoritarianism at the mm. same time and has acted with this extraordinary sort of sense of predictive, horrible predictive power. <laughs> There's a new book called I Am The Law by Michael Mulcher, uh, the brilliant Michael Mulcher. Um, and the book is extremely good, looking at the politics of Judge Dredd. And I'm doing an event at the Cartoon Museum mm -hmm. in February at some time but that you will be able to find if you yes. Google it, where you can come and listen to us talk about that, which is mostly me asking him questions about Judge Dredd and Hayek and, you know, broken windows and authoritarian policing and all that. It's going to be fucking brilliant. So you should come along. So if you're in the very slim bit of the Venn diagram, it's got me, you, yes. Dorian, yes. and, and in it, come along. It'll be great. Yeah. The thing is that I think the passion that you and I bring to this subject is so strong that we have created additional human beings. There we go. We sort of manifested them. Yeah, we have indeed. Well, that's the show. Thank you, Naomi Smith. Thank you very much. Thank you, Seth Tabo. Always a pleasure. And thank you, Ian Dunt. No, thank you very much. Uh, listeners, thanks for listening. If you're in a podcasting mood, why not try now the first episode of our brilliant new series, Jam Tomorrow, where Ros Taylor looks into the promises that we were sold at the end of the Second World War and what happened to them. Episode one, Every Day is Like D-Day, is out now wherever you get your pods. And now it only remains for us to queue up Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, our mighty theme tune, and thank some of our many and patient Patreon backers. Hello, and thanks from me to James Runham, Jonathan Todd, Amy Felsinger, Carolyn Wyman, Michael Hughes, James Crane, Bartek, and David Cotton. Huge thanks from me to Bernard Hughes, Rob Colley, Kent Ostertag, Don Pravina Marasing, Stuart Tansley, Yuha Nisniemi, Matt Webb, and, in a flagrant instance of electoral interference, Ogwen endorses Katie Welcher for fourth grade student council at Happy Hollow. Fix, fix. This is an incredible thing to have done. Hello, uh, and thanks for your generous support to uh, Ms. Daniela Petraco, Alexander Vince, Jenny Stewart, Matthew Epps, Rosemary Conley. And finally, a massive shout out and big up from me to Tippy T. Lawton, Raffo Bonacorsi, Alice Sowerby, Dominic Gassure, John Miller. Gary Dalton, Fabienne Panier, and Rebecca Conroy. We will see you next time. Oh God, What Now? It was presented by Andrew Harrison with Naomi Smith, Ian Dunt, and Seth Tebo. The producers are Jack Gerbertson and Alex Reese with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and audio production came from me, Robin Lieber. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit of velvet-roped smoking area for Patreon backers. This time, got any Veras? <laughs> Labour could be about to ban the sale of cigarettes entirely if it wins the next general election. Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting told Lord Coonsberg last weekend he said the move could help get the NHS back on track. In <laughs> Yeah, I know. Well, why not? <laughs> what kind of time horizon is he looking at? I was just like, stop people smoking ciggies outside hospitals. It's going to fix everything. Well, there's a law in New Zealand, a brand new law, means that nobody who is currently under the age of 14 will ever be legally able to buy cigarettes. And West Street is interested in something similar here. So we thought we'd talk about vice, not just banning cigarettes, but also the values in our vices. Naomi, this came a bit out of the blue. What What is West Street getting at? Does it, is it just the kind of thing that bubbles to the top of your mind when Laura Koonsberg is staring at you with those <laughs> frightening eyes? I don't know how much she had thought it through. I did go back and watch it. And, and that was your nicotine-style taster of the extra bit. First one's free. Yeah, you can have another one, but it's going to cost you. <laughs> 
Meet us around the back of the bike sheds by searching Patreon Oh God What Now to find out how to support us on Patreon and get the extended version of the podcast with the extra bit, plus early ad-free episodes, merch, early bird live tickets, and much, much more.